Each week we got memory verses that we're working on, and last week's memory verse is John 5, verse 19, and I am putting it on the screen again for you so you can read out loud with me. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, read out loud with me, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then the memory verse for this next week is from Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where we find these words. And read this out loud with me again. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, we have these memory verses not just so that we can say them together out loud on Sunday morning, kind of like us I never did this at camp, but you hear about at camp, you always grab hands and you gather around the fire and sing Kumbaya. That's, that's not what we're doing this for. We're doing this because it is so important for us to hide God's Word in our heart and to commit it to memory. This past week, I was counseling someone who's going through a really difficult time, and, and as I'm counseling them, the Lord just continues to bring Scriptures to my mind over and over and over again. And it's because I had committed those scriptures to memory that I could then apply it to the circumstance that I was in. And it was a huge help to to me and to the person that I was counseling. But today we're talking about the idea of a crisis of belief that then requires faith and action. A crisis of belief, belief that requires faith and action. And I want to start our conversation by taking a look at the Old Testament king, Saul. So you're in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Look at verse 24 with me. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Now, I give you just this one verse because in order to get the context of everything that's going on, there's a whole lot of reading that we would honestly spend most of the time this morning reading instead of working through what this means and and where God's taken us. The nation of Israel as a whole is designed by God for him to be their king, for them to not have a human king. He is the one who's supposed to provide for them, rule them, lead them, protect them. He is to be their king. The problem is that the people have have experienced all these judges, and now they're looking at at, at Samuel, the prophet, the very godly man, and they're saying, hey, we want a literal king. We want to put the crown on a man's head. We want to build the throne that the man sits in. We want a king. Well, God knows that that is not what is best because what will inevitably happen is that that king will lead the people away from him. And maybe it's not one king, but somewhere down the line, a king will lead the people away from him. But sometimes God takes us and he looks at us and when we are begging for our will over his will, he says, okay, I'm gonna let you go. You're choosing plan B, you're choosing second best over my plan A, over my best, but I'm gonna let you go. That's exactly what he does here. So he sends Samuel, this godly prophet out to go and and find the right king and then Samuel comes along and, and and he chooses Saul to be the king. You get down to 1 Samuel chapter 11, the very next chapter, and what we find is that Samuel, excuse me, Saul wins this great victory in driving the enemy out of the promised land, out of the nation of Israel. So up to this point, he's followed God. He's he's on this spiritual, this emotional high, and great things seem like they're in store for Saul and his kingship over Israel. But then you get down to chapter 13, and this is where Saul's crisis of belief comes in. Israel's archenemy, the Philistines, 
way over near the Mediterranean Sea is where they're from. They come over into Israel and they bring their game A. They bring their best. In fact, you look at uh, verse 5, verse 7 chapter 13, verse 5. Here's what we find. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. The Philistines have come out strong. They are throwing everything that they've got at the army of Israel. And this is Saul's first real test. Because it's easy to win that battle when you're on that high and when you've got the momentum and when, you, when the enemy's not expecting it. But now the Philistines hear, oh, there's a new king in Israel. So they're marching on to on the nation of Israel. In fact, when they get there, the, um, the enemy, the Philistines are so intimidating that what we find in a few moments is that the army of Israel runs and hides. That's a big difference from just chapter 11 where they were victorious. Now, now they're running and hiding. I want to ask you something that really goes along with this, that really applies this to our lives today. When God has called you to do something and things get tough in what he's called you to do, what is your typical response? What's your typical response? I'll tell you what the Israelites did, and Saul's included in this, okay? It's not like Saul's out there standing alone ready to fight. No, he's run and he's hidden, he's hidden himself away as well. In just a moment, we're going to see that he doesn't just hide himself. He does something that is absolutely ungodly. And you know, for us, it's not like there's this ferocious army that's coming with 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and, and enough foot soldiers that would, that would equal the sands of the seashore. That's not what happens. In fact, if that happens against you, then, then man, something's wrong somewhere. But that's not what typically happens. What typically happens is that Satan sees the way that God is using you. He sees the way that God is using us as a church, and he wants nothing more than to stop where God is working. And so what happens is he gives this distraction, this distraction, this heartache, and this relationship issue, and this, and this, and this, and this, to try to distract us, to drive us away from God's best, from God's plan A. That's how Satan works. And you know, regardless of, of what this looks like, we've all got a decision that we have got to make when God has invited us to join him where he's working, when we, when we follow God in what he's doing, but then when opposition starts to come up, we have got to make a decision. And this is what Henry Blackaby calls that, um, that crisis of belief, crisis of belief. And you might want to write those. In fact, this is, this is the title in your handout today on the back side. It's that crisis of belief. And then underneath that, I would encourage you to write the question just very simply, what do I believe about God? That's what a crisis of belief is. It's, it's the question, what do I believe about God? What do I believe about who he is? What do I believe about what he can do? What do I believe about his will, about his purposes? What do I believe about God? And our response in this crisis of belief correlates directly with what we believe about God. Let's look at Saul's crisis of belief that takes place in chapter 13. I'm going to start reading in verse 6 and read all the way through verse 14. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, I want to pause there for just a moment, okay? 
Here's, here's how, if, if you could visualize with me, and okay, I'm going to turn around like this so that you can visualize this. Okay, you got the nation of Israel that's right here. You got the Philistines coming from over here near the Mediterranean Sea. You got the Jordan River on this side, and on the other side of the Jordan River is where the people would have come from leaving Egypt to go into the promised land. They cross the Jordan River into the, the promised land. The problem is when this great opposition has come up from the Philistines, where do the people run to? right back across the Jordan River in the direction in which they came, in which they were in slavery. That's how fearful they were. It's almost like they're saying, I would rather go back to my slavery than to stand where God has given me a promise, a land, a hope, and a future. Let's keep reading. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within days, the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, Saul says, and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Who's that? The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, if I could sum up everything that's happened here, I would do it in in very simple terms. I would do it in this way. Saul had a clear call from God with a clear responsibility. When it looked to Saul like God was losing control, Saul took matters into his own hands and he did things his way instead of God's way. Saul had a choice. He could continue following the instruction of the Lord and following the Lord's anointed man in Samuel, or he could do things his way. And in this crisis of belief, Saul chose his way. Here's the reality that we're looking at heavily this next week in our, in our workbooks, in our Experiencing God study. It's this one. It's God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. You see, God's invitation is going to lead you to question what you believe about God. God, what do I believe about you? And what you believe about God is going to push you to obedience. Now, I want to get, I want to get really practical here for just a moment, okay? Specifically when it comes to our church. And, and, and I want to actually start this with a celebration. Not yesterday, but last Saturday, we had a yard sale in which we were raising money for the mission house that needs work. And in that yard sale, we raised just shy, but $50 shy, actually, of $4,000, okay? Now, that's a celebration. Let's, let's celebrate that as a church. Because <clears throat> that's money that's now going to go directly into the mission house that provides a place for our missionaries to stay when they come home on furlough. It's a huge ministry for our church. It's, it's fantastic. 
The best ministry ideas come from within the church. I've said that. Our staff has said that all along. We, we, we believe that the best ministry ideas come from within the church. And God's people take ownership of those ideas, and God often blesses in incredible ways because of individuals' faithfulness to follow God. Now, I said that the best ministry ideas come from within the, from within the church. But I also believe some of the worst ministry ideas come from within the church. And in my six years of being your pastor, almost six years of being your pastor, I've seen some, heard some doozies, okay? Some really, really off-the-wall ideas. But here's the cool thing. God specializes in putting our man-centered wisdom to shame. And sometimes we have great ideas about how to serve God and how to follow God. And God says, no, that's not my plan. That's not where I'm working. And other times it seems like there's some, some crazy ideas that come up. And I'm not saying that we are sales a crazy idea. I'll get to that here in just a moment, okay? But some crazy ideas that God says, yeah, that's where I'm working. That's exactly what I'm doing. And I want you to join me in that. That's really a large part of what this Experiencing God study is all about. It's about God having a plan that he wants to carry out in our world, and then he invites us to join him in that plan. I've heard more ministry ideas come from church members in the last six weeks than I have in the past year. Things that individual church members are passionate about, and they see God working, and they're seeking to join God where he's working. You know, a lot of times church members have ideas for ministry and they come to the pastors and expect the pastors to go and do that ministry. Oh, I gave the idea. Okay, now you take it and run with it. But that's not at all how it's supposed to work. We as pastors are here to shepherd the flock and encourage and build up in the faith and assist in giving you a foundation upon which to minister. You're the ministers in the most practical sense of the word. God has gifted each Christian uniquely to carry out his plan in the world. And Jeff Failing and, the, and the, um, the yard sale that he organized is a great example of this. He saw where God was working. He realized that there was a need. He followed God where he was leading. He faithfully worked hard to obey God where he was working, and the Lord brought the increase. It was the Lord who brought the increase. Jeff was just faithful in that, and the team that he put together was just faithful in that. Some of you have unique ministry ideas and unique giftings and, and passions when it comes to ministry, and you've sensed the Lord nudging you to do this or to do that, and you've thought, well, you know, the pastor's not leading this, so it must not be God's will. But if you're a Christian who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have just as much potential of the Lord working through you to accomplish his plan in the world as the pastor does. Years ago, before my time as, as pastor, there's a few ladies here in our church who, who went to the previous pastor and they asked if they could start a ladies' ministry. This is the Ruby's ladies' ministry. And he said, absolutely. So they took it and they ran with it. And now that's a ministry that encourages the ladies of our church. Sometime back, there was a couple of men who wanted to begin a men's prayer time on Saturday mornings and a, a men's Bible study on Wednesday nights. And they now meet regularly for that. The same thing happened with ladies in our church who said, you know what, I, we believe we should be praying, gathering together to pray, and they pray a couple of Tuesdays a month now. Those are things that are led by you, the church. You are being the church. I can't tell you how many times over the past several years that church members have come to me and they've had ideas for ministry, for personal ministry, and, and I've enthusiastically encouraged them to do so. Not too long ago, there was a guy who came to me and said, I really want to start a workplace Bible study. 
And he looked at me like, should I do that? And I said, absolutely, yes. You don't need my permission to do that. Yeah, go do it. If God is working in that way, go do it. You don't need me or another pastor to lead the ministry that God's invited you as an individual Christian to join him in. Now, I like hearing about those things. I love hearing about those ministries. I love being able to pray for you and encourage you and ask how things are going sometimes, but you don't need me to lead it. God's given you the passion for it. And I say this because as I've been working through the Experiencing God study these last six weeks, and we're going into our seventh week now, I'm becoming more and more convinced that God wants to use this church to work through this church to reach 1% of the lost population of Winston-Salem. And I don't know if it's going to happen in a year or 25 years. I don't have any idea. But what I do know without a doubt that the only way that he's going to do so is if the individual Christians of our church move past their comfortable Christianity and they actually join God where he's inviting them to join him. But when you do join God, there is a crisis of belief that is going to take place in which you have got to decide what you believe about what God can do. And not only that, but you have to decide what you believe God wants to do. Is it a part of God's heart to reach our city with the gospel? Yes. Is it a part of God's heart for you to reach out to your neighbor who's going through a difficult time and encourage them and love them and show them where they can find hope? Yes. Is it a part of God's heart for those who are in our community who have very little, who are very poor, and oftentimes can't even take care of putting food on the table for us to minister to them? Yes. These are things that are a part of God's heart. And all he's doing is inviting us to join him where he's working in those things, and that is where he will bring the increase. It's not up to us. Our job is to be faithful. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, because what we're going to find is, as we work through this, is that this crisis of belief is going to require two things. It's going to require faith and it's going to require action. And I want to take just a moment to look at both of those things briefly. Hebrews chapter 11 is what is known as the hall of faith. And and there's all of these individuals in um, Hebrews 11 that you see, they had this great faith and, and God did these great things through them and it's absolutely fantastic. God's invitation, I'll go back to that reality, God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Let's read Hebrews chapter 11 and just verse one there. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then from there it goes through the the hall of faith. By the way, do you know one name that's not listed in the hall of faith? We've already mentioned him. Saul from the Old Testament. He's not listed there. Why? Because he's known more for his lack of faith than for his great faith, any level of great faith. This is the first first verse of Hebrews chapter 11. And in this verse we got a definition of faith. But in this definition it's like there's two seemingly contradictory statements. Okay, first there's the word assurance, and the associated word with that is hope. So assurance and hope. And then you've got the word conviction associated with the words things not seen. Now those things really don't, those words really don't seem like they go together, do they? If you go to a witness stand to testify in a trial and you say, I know, I'm positive, I'm assured that this happened. 
And then the lawyer says something like, well, how do you know? And you respond with, because I have hope that it happened. You can get laughed out of the courtroom, aren't you? Because that doesn't seem like it makes any sense. If you tell a person that you've got a conviction about something being true, even though you've never seen it, they may think that you've gone crazy. They're going to ask for your proof. They're going to want to know what made you a professional in that matter. And they're going to think you're crazy that when you tell them that you have actually never seen whatever it is that you're talking about. That's man kingdom, though. God's kingdom, everything is upside down. Everything happens contrary to what our natural minds and bodies tell us should happen. So when God's upside down kingdom, God's logic works this way. Faith is the assurance that our hope is actually true. Faith is the assurance that our hope is actually true. Faith is the conviction to believe that things that I've never laid my eyes on can actually happen. A Christian has faith that even though we never saw him, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that our eternal spiritual life can be found in Jesus. A Christian has faith that God can do incredible things for the glory, uh, for his glory and for the good of mankind. Even in our lives right now, we have faith that God can do that. A Christian has faith that there is a far better life to come than the one that we're in right now. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith takes what we believe to be true about God and it says, you know what? It may not make sense according to man's natural kingdom. I may get called a fool for believing this, but I'm going to believe it anyway and I'm going to obey it anyway because the risk is worth the reward. That's where the key comes in. The risk is worth the reward. So, so far, here's how this thing works, okay? God calls. We're forced to come to grips about what we believe about God and we practice bold faith to obey him. But if we stop at faith, then we're missing an important step. So now take your Bibles over one book to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and when you get there, I'm going to read, starting at verse 22. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is talking specifically about acting in obedience to the law and the word of the Lord. Now, if, if we were to go back to that natural man-centered way of life. Here is the formula that we often use. Christians use this. It's the hear, so I hear, plus nothing, but the result is nothing. And let me explain this to us. We hear the sermon, we hear scripture, we hear godly people speaking truth into our lives, but we do nothing in response. We, we often give affirmation to what we hear. We talk about how great it was, and, and we talk about how much we needed to hear what was heard, but we do nothing in response. 
You know, it baffles me. It absolutely baffles me how a person can sit under preaching week after week after week and even read a daily devotion or maybe read scripture every single day, yet never take steps to apply and more importantly, obey God's word. And then we wonder why God's not working through us to accomplish his plan in the world around us. And we wonder why we can't see God and we wonder why when things get tough, it doesn't seem like God is with us. But the answer is simple. Our refusal to obey the word of God and the leading of God will yield no kingdom results. Because God is looking for individuals of faith and action. Here's how this is supposed to work. The formula that supposed to be a part of. Here plus do equals God only knows. Only God knows. When my hearing of truth results in action, only God knows what can be done as a result. And that's the cool thing about this, y'all. God's power and God's resources are unlimited and there is no telling what God can do through simple, obedient Christians who act in accordance with his will. So going back to how this thing works again, God calls, we come to grips about what we believe about God, we practice bold faith in obeying God, and our action in following him yields results that are just up to God. God, you do what you want in this. Here's a story to illustrate this, and then I'm gonna wrap it up. For about 10 years, there were some missionaries The names were Robert and Mary Moffat, who labored very faithfully in Botswana. And there wasn't, in that 10 years, even a ray of encouragement for them. There was not a single convert. It seemed like there was no hope even hardly of a convert. Finally, the directors of the mission board began to question the wisdom of continuing the work there, and the missionaries thought about leaving their post But that thought brought great grief to them and they felt sure that God was in their labors and that one day they would see people turn to Christ. So they stayed and for a year or two longer, nothing happened. Darkness reigned. One day a friend friend in England sent word to the Moffats that she would like to mail them a gift of some kind and and she asked what they would like. And Mrs. Moffat trusted that in time the Lord would bless their work. And so she replied back, send us a communion set for the Lord's Supper, knowing that the Lord's Supper is only for Christians, but yet having no church, no Christians there besides the two of them. Send us a communion set. I am sure it will soon be needed, she said. God honored that dear woman's faith. The Holy Spirit moved upon the hearts of the villagers And soon the little group of six converts was united to form the first Christian church in Botswana. The communion set from England was delayed in the mail, but on the very day before the first commemoration of the Lord's Supper in Botswana, the set arrived. This is exactly what all of this looks like that we've been talking about. God's calling isn't always easy, but it always leads us to a crisis of belief in which we determine what do we believe about God? What do we believe about what he can do? What do we believe about what he wants to do? And as we work to answer that question and it leads us into faith and it leads us into action, then 
we can just watch God work. And it's highly unlikely that he's going to work the way that we expect him to work. But the way that he ends up working will absolutely blow our minds every single time. Why? Because it couldn't have been done in my power, and it can't be done in your power. It can only be done in God's power. So church, that's what we pray for. We pray, God, bring us to a crisis of belief where we come to understand and believe and know you to be true and know you to be God, and then, God, we follow you in faith and action. And that's it. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the example that we have, both in the life of Saul, where when that crisis of belief came, he did not respond in faith and action. He took it upon himself as if it was all up to him. But then, Father, the countless stories we have of the people who responded to you and to what you promised and to what you said and who, you, who they knew you to be, they responded with faith and action. And, Lord, you turned it into results that no man could ever, ever produce. Father, we pray that for us. May we not take matters into our own hands, but rather look to see where you're working to join you in that work and to see you yield results. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for your faithfulness and the fact that you never, ever once leave us on our own. You never, ever let us down. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.